It started out kind of like a dating relationship, right? Like you just start texting back and forth. We're just writing each other back and forth. Me trying to get a, a gauge on what their struggles were. And then they started sending me voice memos. This is Leah Harding. She's a senior producer for Al Jazeera's interactive news hour, NewsGrid, where she dives deep into social media and uses WhatsApp and other tools to communicate with people around the world, especially where Al Jazeera and other global media organizations don't have any journalists on the ground. Cameroon is one of those places. So in Cameroon, it's a Central African country. You're having the southwest and northwest parts of Cameroon who are a minority group because they speak English, they're saying that they want to be better represented in the government, which is a French-speaking government. We have a proper means to organize our educational system. We have proper means of our health system. It's a time of freedom. They colonized us, and now is the time. And so you have this clash that has continued to build, mainly since 2016 when a lot of this kicked off, and it really does seem to be getting worse. I'm Imtiaz Tayeb, and this is The Take. Every week, we bring you a story from Al Jazeera journalism. This is a story about a violent conflict, but also about how we report in the era of social media. Cameroon is at war with itself. Around 80% of the country speaks French. The rest speak English. French speakers largely control Cameroon's government, and some Anglophones have felt marginalized since 1961, when French Cameroon and British Cameroon were unified. You still very much had a segregated country linguistically between the Francophones and the Anglophones. So this is a very deep-seated, ongoing issue that is based in colonialism that goes back to the 60s. And even online today, you'll see a lot of references to the 60s, people saying that this is not what we voted for when we wanted to become part of Cameroon. We've lost our identity here. And what they're asking for, many of them, is to be called their own country, which they call Ambazonia, which is based on a river in southern Cameroon. Colonialism has left conflicts in its wake all over the world. In Cameroon, the fight has been drawn along linguistic lines. But in a lot of ways, it's an old and simple story. The minority says it's being oppressed by the majority. Why is Cameroon in a fight with itself now? In recent years, the government has been assigning more and more French-speaking judges and teachers to their courts and schools. In 2016, English-speaking lawyers and teachers organized peaceful protests in response. The government cracked down hard. Violence escalated on both sides, and hundreds have died. Images of Cameroon's Rapid Intervention Battalion soldiers, an army unit trained by the U.S. and Israeli forces, have been recorded burning villages and shooting citizens in the Anglo regions. Meanwhile, separatists have responded by burning schools and killing government soldiers and residents they accuse of being informants for the government. And the government controls the media in Cameroon. When all this started, the internet, especially Twitter, was the main tool for the English-speaking region to communicate with the world. And Leah and NewsGrid got caught up in the middle of it from Doha. We have an update now on Cameroon, um, a topic, a country that we cover quite a bit here on Grid. Leah, uh, what is the latest on what you're seeing online? Well, we've had a lot of reaction to a new human rights. The hashtag battle is absolutely fascinating when it comes to this story. Just to give you a little bit of background, 
our show NewsGrid launched November 2016. By December 2016, they had found our show and were bombarding us with messages, they being the English-speaking Cameroonians. And at the time, it was at the height of the lawyer and teacher strikes, not going to courts, not going to school. So the hashtag was Ghost Town Monday. So every Monday, they would be posting pictures online saying to not go to school. If you're a nurse, don't go to the hospital. If you're a lawyer, don't go to court. And let's make this a, a movement where the government would feel our absence. So we were able to follow along with this story based on what the conversation was online. It was like our own like Reuters feed coming through, but live time and from people who are actually on the ground. I am embarrassed, shocked, totally devastated at the level of carnage. I ran into the military. They fired a tear gas canister at me. So I had to scamper for safety, just to show you how tense and how brutal the, the, the situation is. So the government ended up shutting down the internet in the northwest and southwest region to try to quiet these hashtags and to silence these voices that were so unified. And what we ended up seeing were internet refugees, which is a term that I had not heard before, where you were having English speakers leave the English-speaking parts of Cameroon in order to find a signal so that they could continue their hashtags. Tell me a little bit about the people who are reaching out to you in Cameroon. I understand that at first they were anonymous, but but that changed. So at the beginning, there was a lot of fear with these people that were reaching out to me that like, well, I'll tell you, I'll give you a pseudonym or that my picture on my Twitter page isn't actually me. It's someone I found online. And there was a real fear that if the government knew who was behind these hashtags and who was supporting this movement, that they maybe become one of those who were arrested. And so there was a lot of uh, fear. And yet they came to me and were trusting me with their story. I was living in Batibo. I had a family there which we have been staying there for God knows how long until when the military men came in and they were just arresting young boys and killing some, brutalizing some. Even I myself, I witnessed serious beatings from the soldiers, which I managed to escape from where they took us and kept us. They would send me videos showing their face and then saying, please share this with the world on Al Jazeera, but just don't say my name. Or here's my face, here's my story, but please blur my face and really trusting me. But they didn't know exactly who I was. They just were that desperate to have their stories heard. And as far as verification goes, what I started doing in the beginning was asking the same questions to a wide variety of people who are writing me. And I would also write people as well saying, you know, like, how was the ghost town today and what city are you in? And I would get, I would start to be able to piece together a full story and the stories would match. You know, they'd be like, I'm in Bameda and um, one person was shot, but it was a successful ghost town and one school was raided, for example. Then I would ask that same question to like 10 or 20 other people and they would start to tell me the same story. So a lot of it is based on trust. And then what was interesting is 
following these accounts. It would usually take like two weeks, but you would start to see reports on Human Rights Watch or on Amnesty. And I could look back and say, okay, my sources were telling me the same thing in an article that I'm reading now. So the trust started to build, their story started to align, and thus this coverage on Al Jazeera was born. I want to talk a little bit about WhatsApp. Um, AJ Newsgrid has its own WhatsApp account for viewers around the world to get in touch. Um, But with Cameroon and and with this very specific issue, it it kind of played an outsized role. Explain that a little bit to me. We broadcast our WhatsApp number on Newsgrid every night. I mean, I've memorized it, plus 974-501-11149. Like, I think Cameroon have memorized it too because we get hundreds of messages about this. What's fascinating with Cameroon is you have 60% of the population under the age of 25. So you have this youth movement, really, that are quite savvy, it seems, with technology and Twitter, especially in WhatsApp. And they found Al Jazeera, they found NewsGrid, and they have made it their mission to let us know what's going on in their neighborhoods. And we get hundreds of messages a day. I am from Belu. I have lost almost everybody in my family except my grandmother. I've lost almost everybody. Some entered the the, the Amazonian fighters and they have been killed. Some were moved out of their houses and were killed. And uh, our compound has been completely destroyed. They killed my father, my brother and my cousin in the house. They killed them all. With WhatsApp, we've been able to talk to people and them feel a little bit more safe than on Twitter because it is encrypted, which plays a big role in this. And the it's been much more of a transparent relationship between NewsGrid and these people because they can just write us directly. You are asking me if I want uh, the country, Ambazonia. Yes, I want it. I honestly want it. I think La Republic just wants to kill all of us. I want it, even if I die, if I have a means of going into the bush to fight with the Amber Boys, I will do that. Even if I die, they raped me. They raped me. This seems like one of those situations where you have one side, uh, in this case, the Anglophones, saying one thing, you know, that they're they're being discriminated against, persecuted, murdered, uh, that their villages are being burned down. And then you have the other side, uh, close to the government, uh, who are saying the opposite, that it's the English-speaking separatists who've terrorized civilians and attacked the governments and their forces, prompting the military to, to retaliate against them. And since you're part of Al Jazeera English, you've, of course, heard more from the Anglophones, but where's the truth? How do we know where the truth lies? Well, like any good argument, there's truth on both sides here. The separatists are burning down villages because they're mad at the government and the government does come in and raid towns. So we have to kind of go into this knowing that in a way, both sides are not playing clean. I think what's important to know is that both sides have a reason for saying and doing what they're doing. The the francophones, the government is saying, look, like we have a president, we have our own currency, like this is our language, and 
you Anglophones actually voted to become a part of this country in the 60s. So play by our rules. You're a part of Cameroon. But then you have the Anglophones who are saying a totally different story, which we've gone over before of like, we want to be better represented here. And if that won't work, then we want our own country. And so who's right? I mean, there are human rights abuses, according to different human rights watchdogs that are going on in the country. So people are suffering here on both sides. So one way to try to sort out who's saying what and why uh, is to go there yourself. Uh, Leah, you were doing as much as you could from afar, uh, but Al Jazeera needed someone on the ground and, you know, took ages to get permissions to travel to Cameroon. Uh, But finally, we got it. Uh, Al Jazeera correspondent Hiba Morgan spoke to people who've been displaced by the conflict. Let's take a listen to a clip here. Two months ago, John fled his village in southwest Cameroon. He says government soldiers came and attacked and burned houses, and he had no option but to flee with his wife and two children, leaving their third child behind. The internet has been cut off, so he has no way of finding out how she's doing or if she's still alive. I even lost one of my cousins. She was killed, they cut off his head, operate him like an animal, remove his heart, and burn him. Oh my cousin. Hiba heard a lot of stories like this, really horrifying stories, when she was in Cameroon in October. She's waiting for permission to go back. We caught up with her in Juba, in South Sudan, where she's based. When we were in Cameroon in October 2018, uh, we covered the elections in which uh, Paul Bia eventually went on to win his seventh term. But we were also able to go to the southwest region. And the situation, as we saw, it was quite disturbing, to say the least. We met some displaced people. A lot of them were not ready to talk about what they've been through. Others were ready to share their experience and talk to us about what they saw. And they spoke about how they heard gunshots at night, how they saw people being killed, and how they felt that it would eventually be their turn, so they had to leave with their families. And we also met people who have been uh, not displaced, but have been injured and have been complaining about the Anglophone separatist fighters. So what they were saying was that, you know, both sides were bothering them. They said that the government would view them as people who were sympathetic with the separatist fighters because they didn't Uh, really condemn what the separatist fighters were doing. But at the same time, they felt like the separatist fighters were regarding them as traitors because they continued to go to work normally. They didn't um, hold strikes against the government. They didn't come out as brazenly as the separatist fighters did against the government. So they felt like they were caught in the middle. You're following the conflict from South Sudan and are planning on going back to Cameroon soon. What are your sources there telling you about how things are right now? Uh, Over the past few weeks, I've been speaking to uh, church leaders in the southwest and northwest regions, and they've been describing the situation as not as tense as it used to be during the elections, but they're saying that it's it's, it's a weird kind of um, calm. It's not very calm. They do hear gunshots every now and then, and they do um, feel threatened, and a lot of the displaced people that they have been in touch with are not secure enough, are not confident enough to be able to come out of the bush to be able to uh, resume their daily lives and go back to their homes. They want to hear from their relatives who are in like Southwest and Northwest saying, we don't hear gunshots uh, anymore. And the fact that they're not getting those reports back are making them very concerned. And Human Rights Watch have said that since October last year, 170 civilians have been killed. 
And, and that is quite a high figure considering the fact that they're civilians and unarmed. You know, the conflict doesn't seem to have an end in sight. How's the government been dealing with this situation? Have they been trying to find a way to open dialogue? Have they been trying to find a way to come to some sort of agreement which could see an end to this violence? When we were there and spoke to government officials, they said that they want to negotiate with the separatist fighters, but it's very hard to negotiate or start negotiations when you're calling the side that you want to negotiate with, allegedly. You're calling them traitors. So in in a way, you've already labeled and made negotiations impossible. And the separatists say that they don't want negotiations. You know, they just want an independent country. They want to be recognized as as an independent country. At the moment, uh, it seems like there is still a long way to go before either Ambazonia becomes an independent country or the government of Cameroon negotiates and end this conflict. And unless both sides come up with talking points and ways to try to end the crisis, um, they will be affected for a long time. Many human rights watchdogs have mentioned violations in Cameroon. The United States cut some of its military assistance because of it. But are other nations trying to intervene in this conflict? Has there been a sort of international response? We went back to Leah to ask her. There's always, from the English-speaking side, a desire for there to be more of a push to resolve this. The UN has discussed this ongoing crisis multiple times from the General Assembly. The Secretary General takes note of the calls by authorities for dialogue and encourages representatives of the Anglophone community to seize the opportunity in their quest for solutions to the community's grievance within the framework of the Cameroonian constitution. But it's been a lot of press releases and not a lot of action as far as most of this coverage is concerned. So you have the UN talking about it, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, a lot of smaller publications. And so you have these publications and people are starting to catch on a little bit more to what's going on there. But as far as pressure on Paul Bia's government, we haven't seen that. The the closest thing we've had to that is the U.S. ambassador to Cameroon saying that there needs to be a dialogue, which hasn't happened, and for the U.N. to say that this all needs to stop, that both sides need to resolve this conflict, which, as we also know, hasn't happened. What's so interesting about this conversation is... You know, this is a story that is really underreported, but came to you through social media. Tell me about how you engaged with it. It sounds like it's something that's become a really big part of your job. Yeah, well, I couldn't ignore this story. Like, when I started getting messages to cover it, it felt very personal. Like, people were writing me directly. It wasn't like a mob. This conversation just kept coming up, and I felt obligated as a journalist to listen and to see where it goes. And it's been a really good lesson in it for me to let the people on the ground tell the story. I'm able to kind of act as a mediator and a middleman to put what they're saying on international news. You know, I can go and talk to my my boss and say, we need to do this story. Like they can't go to him and say that. And I feel an obligation to do something about this also because it's so underreported. You know, it's something that is kind of swept under the rug that you say Cameroon to people and many people don't even know where Cameroon is. And so if this is something that I can tap into, educate myself on and do 
the best job that I can as a reporter to cover it, then I can sleep at night. To ignore this would really be the greatest injustice. But that's not all we have this week. Hi, this is Amy Walters, a senior producer here at The Take. Remember how we mentioned Hibba was waiting for permission to get into Cameroon? Before she could go, she ended up in Sudan instead. And right before we wrapped on this episode, this happened. And here I declare in my capacity as the defense minister, chairman of the Supreme Committee to get rid of this regime and to arrest the head of the regime in a safe place. It's the news a lot of Sudanese have been waiting for years to hear. The end of Omar al-Bashir's presidency. After almost 30 years in power, Bashir's out. And he's gone the same way he came in, overthrown in a military coup. This is Al Jazeera live from Doha with breaking news. Well, there's been plenty happening on the streets of Khartoum this morning. It's been announced that the army is taking control of the country. People in the streets are celebrating, but there are people who are already speaking up on social media saying that uh, they've not been protesting for this. Hibba's reporting now from Sudan's capital, Khartoum. People started celebrating, um, even from the bureau where we were. We could hear people in the streets uh, shouting happily, and we can hear the sound of drums, and we can hear the ululation of women. But the excitement didn't last long for everybody. Protesters had been asking for the military's help to get rid of Bashir. And when the soldiers stepped in to guard the protesters a few days ago, that was the turning point. But a military government is not what most of them wanted. On the street, some of people are saying that one thief has been removed and has been replaced with another thief. The defense minister, General Awad bin Auf, says a military council will take over for the transition. He's the one we heard making the announcement. The army will implement a two-year uh, military tra transitional council, he said, with public representation. It will cancel the 2005 constitution. There'll be a three-month state of emergency. Protesters want a civilian in charge for the transition to elections. And they're saying they'll keep up the demonstrations until that happens. Having Ibn Auf come out and talk about uh, three months of uh, emergency, state of emergency and two years transition is not what we were fighting for. We weren't fighting one person, we were fighting a system. And to us, this is a slap in the face and he's just back. This is not our revolution, we're not done, we're definitely back in the streets. These protesters already defied Bashir's state of emergency when they staged a mass sit-in outside the military headquarters. And they were on the streets for months. Activists say more than 60 people have been killed since December, more than 20 in just the past few days. These are not people who are just going to give up and go home. My impression is that uh, Sudan is not yet out of uh, the crisis that it has gotten itself in since December um, 19th to last year, 2018. Sudan still has a long way to go. Uh, it could continue with more protests. It could end up uh, with people waiting to see how uh, this uh, military council will run the country for the next two years. 
Hiba also says, even with all the uncertainty, for a lot of people, this announcement still feels like a victory, or at least the first step to one. Like many others, I, all I've known is President Bashir as president of Sudan, and most of the people who are below 30s have known only President Bashir as the leader of the country, and his leadership is the only leadership they know. So the moment felt a little bit unreal, and um, obviously for those protesting, it was the moment that they've been waiting for. Uh, uh, for me, who basically reports on Sudan, it was a moment that um, I knew would define history, specifically Sudanese history. So it was a little bit of a surreal moment, and um, it was basically like watching history in the making. So uh, Sudan still has a long way to go, that's what I think. And I think uh, whatever happens, one thing we know for sure is that uh, Sudan has entered a new phase and new phases are not always easy to begin. We did a lot more on the roots of these protests earlier this year. You can check it out on the Takes website or just scroll down the episode list wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode was produced by Ney Alvarez with Priyanka Tilbe, Jasmine Bayumi, Alexandra Locke, Dina Kispe, Morgan Waters, and Amy Walters. Seth Samuel was the sound designer. Our social media producer is Natalia Aldana. The show's lead producer is Graylin Brashear, and I'm Imtiaz Tayeb. Special thanks to Leah Harding, Hiba Morgan, and Taffy Chisbo. We'll be back next week.